Lord, we have seen the broken restored because you who were broken knew how to break the power of death and how to resurrect from that which was destroyed that which will last forever. Lord, we want that love that's better than life. And we come here tonight for it. So through the preaching of your word and through the partaking of your sacrament, transmit to us your nature. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, I'm, I'm going to uncharacteristically um, uh, say a couple of things before I begin to preach tonight. And uh, um, there's still folks trying to find seats, so if you have somebody, I'll motion them down to you. First of all, let me uh, encourage you, as Vernon did, to visit the tent um, uh, tonight if you can. I know that we have a singles, uh, big, de big deal, thanks, Emily, big deal singles thing afterwards. And, uh, and uh, so some of you are going to be staying for that. But those of you who are going, go through that tent. Let me tell you why. First of all, two reasons. One, everybody needs to get better connected. Because this is family, and your family ought to know you. I mean, we just ought to know you. Becky and I were at Hartshorn uh, um, Airport uh, in Atlanta Friday night. And, of course, we see a number of people. You always, you always see Northland people all over the place. And, of course, they're always in Atlanta Airport. I mean, we, we, I think we all hang out there or something. And so we, we just met this uh, girl. Becky had known her from the gym. And, and uh, they go to Northland, and her name was uh, Rosemary, I think, Rosie. And they had just, she was coming back from a two-week training thing. She was anxious to get home to her husband. And they had just started, they were just starting teaching four-year-olds. Her husband thought she said fourth grade. <laughs> well, it was too late by the time he got in there. <clears throat> but I, I said, well, that's neat. I, I, you know, how did that come about? And she said something interesting. She said, I just had a friend of mine die. And it was very apparent from her funeral that neither the pastor nor those around knew her. And he said, she said, I didn't want that to happen in my church. I don't, I don't want to have a church where, where I don't know anybody. Nobody knows me. And so, so get, get involved. You know, I was at a conference this week, spoke at a conference, and one of, one of the other speakers was Robert Wuthno. Robert, some of you who know sociology know that this is the premier sociologist of religion in the United States. He teaches at Princeton University. And he said something at this conference that just, I almost fell off my chair. He said... 40% of the people in this nation are in some sort of small group. Can you, I, I just couldn't believe that. But the point is that everybody wants to get connected. We should especially want to get connected. And so go to the tent. And, and the second reason you ought to go to the tent is so that everybody can realize, again, how much we need a building. Holy cow. We shouldn't be going in a parking lot for this thing. We should have air conditioning somewhere in the whole thing. <laughs> I spent a lot of time when I was away uh, in, just in prayer, and uh, um, I just have reconfirmed that God has some things that he's going to do in this church that he's not planning on doing anywhere else. And we need to start getting ready for it. We need to prepare for it. So here's the deal. Here's the deal. We need to build a building. And we not only need to build a meeting space building, we need to build a bigger sanctuary. We've got to get ready for what God's doing. So everything you do, everything you have, everything that comes to you above your tithe, just stamp it building fund, put it in there. We've got to get going on this thing. We've got to get prepared. Okay, secondly, 
I want to talk to you just a moment about the newspaper because there's just a slight error in this newspaper. I cannot tell you how, how uh, complicated this project is. And so uh, the couple of weeks, it's only been out for two weeks now, and we keep going, ugh, you know, and this happens to be ugh on the sermon note page. It's the wrong sermon outline. Now, when I saw that, <laughs> when I saw that, I was really going to give the editor of this paper what for. I mean, I was going to go tell her, I was going to say, look, I know that you serve in a volunteer capacity. But I, you know the high standards of excellence we have in this church, and we can't have this. I was going to say that right to her. And then when I went home, and I looked at her. <laughs> and I just couldn't do it. So give us some time on this, will you? Uh, and, and I even looked down. <laughs> this, is, this is even worse. That, we're just making dumb mistakes because there's a cell phone with a line through it on that page, but there's also a baby bottle with a line through it. We didn't mean to do that. That's terrible. No baby bottles, you know? What does that mean? So give us time on this. We'll, we'll, we'll get there. <laughs> it's a horrible symbol, you know? Um, and, but here's what we've done to compensate. We're going to put the sermon outline. This is the right sermon outline. Uh, on the board, and so you can just kind of follow along. You can still take notes in your paper if you want. Uh, just don't come up and write on the screen. Okay, I told you last week that going from the last part of the 17th chapter of the Gospel of John to the first part of the 18th chapter is like having a bipolar experience. I mean, we go in the last part of the 17th chapter to the heights of the gospel where Jesus is envisioning the future, where, every, where, where the church will be unified, the church will be one, even as he and the Father are one. And, and it kind of, it kind of uh, foreshadows Revelation 7-9 where every tribe and tongue and nation under heaven are surrounding the throne, worshiping the Lord together. Oh, it's wonderful. And then you go to the first part of the 18th chapter and you realize what it's going to cost. You realize what life really hands you when you got great goals. And one of the things that life hands you many times is the betrayal of those who you thought were with you and they ain't with you anymore. And that's exactly the experience he goes through. Now I want to tell you the tone of this. I'm not going to make this a tremendously emotional sermon. We could do that. Uh, but, and I know some of you are still very much hurting from experiences you went through. But I want to give you the tone of where Jesus is at right now. Jesus sees the big picture. And it's not that he doesn't hurt. It's that he understands God's plan in this. And he sees how heaven is going to win against the powers of the earth. And it's wonderful. Read along with me if you have your scriptures with you or you can read no, that doesn't have it up there. You can, it, it, I know that part's right in your newspaper, so you can read along there. Starting with the first verse, 18th chapter, Gospel of John, this is the New American Standard. <clears throat> when Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron, and there was a garden into which he himself entered and his disciples. Now Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place, for Jesus had often met there, with his disciples. Let me tell you two things before we go on. First of all, the scene here is strangely reminiscent 
of something that comes before this particular event in history. As a matter of fact, the dynamic of betrayal is reminiscent of something that predates actual human existence. If you will read uh, Ezekiel chapter 28 and Isaiah chapter 14, you will see the mystical description of the betrayal of Satan against the host of God before the earth was ever created. Satan, you will see, in an analogy to the king of Tyree, you will see that he did it for the exact same reasons that most people betray people today. It was for political reasons. It was for power. It was for um, 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 pride. Um, it was not personal. It was about Satan. It wasn't about God. It was about Satan. One of the things that you have to learn is when people betray you, it's usually not about you. It's about what's going on inside of them. And so, and so we have this cycle started. And then the cycle happens again in the, in the first garden, the Garden of Eden. When this same personage speaks with Adam. And Adam decides that there's something more practical than following God. There's something that will pay off bigger than following God, than obeying God. There's a way that you can expand and extend your life outside of what God wants. And so Adam betrays God and he finds death. Now, after the cycle of betrayal has happened throughout human history, we come to another garden. A garden in which the man whom the Bible labels the second Adam finds himself. And the reaction to the temptation is much different. Now, Jesus would rather die than betray his father. Now, Jesus wants no power for himself. He only wants glory for God. And so, Jesus dies. But in his death, he finds life and life for us all. This is the garden. And it says that it happens in a familiar spot, a spot familiar to Judas. You will notice that many times when you are betrayed, and we're talking about your betrayal tonight, not the times you betrayed others. That's another sermon for another time. We'll get to that. <laughs> but the times that you were betrayed happened on familiar territory. They happened when you least expected them, from the people you least expected. That's what betrayal is. And so Judas knows this spot well. He's been there many times with Jesus himself. And the Bible goes on to say this. Judas then, having received the Roman cohort. Roman cohort is a, roughly uh, a division of 600 men. Now, I doubt that all 600 of them came to the garden, but a good number of them did come to the garden. And this is where John begins to set, set up his battle between the forces of heaven and the forces of the powers of the earth. And the officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. I always find it somewhat ironic that you carry lanterns and torches through the darkness to capture the light of the world. I find it somewhat ironic that you carry weapons to capture the Prince of Peace. They didn't know Jesus very well, did they? Most people don't come to Jesus very well because they don't know him very well. It says this, Jesus, therefore, knowing all things 
that were coming upon him went forth. I want you to remember those words. And said to them, Whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus the Nazarene. And he said to them, I am he. Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with them. Now I want you to see something very, very pertinent here. I want you to see that betrayal is not primarily a personal act. It's a political act. It's not against you. Loyalty is a personal act. Betrayal comes when somebody simply switches sides. And I want you to see human nature for what it really is, because Jesus did, and he was not surprised by Judas' betrayal. We should too. Somewhere along the line, we have been mistaken. We have been misinformed about what people are really like. I think it was Margaret Mead that, that spread the, the, the impression of the noble savage, that somewhere at our basis, we're really kind and decent people. No, if you believe that, you really don't understand original sin. Original sin makes us all little politicians. It makes us want what will make us stronger and makes us go to the exact audience that will give us power. And we will switch when we think we ought to have more power over here. Or this is the better place because over there, we're not getting our share of the power. And that's exactly what Judas did. It says he was standing with them. He wasn't standing against Jesus. He was standing with the ones he thought would give him more power than he had. Because that is a part of the world in which we live. One of the people I interviewed for the television show, and he'll, this interview will come, be broadcast, I think, in a couple of weeks, is Steve Richardson. Some of you know his dad, Don Richardson, who wrote um, Eternity in Their Hearts and Peace Child and so on and so forth, who was a, um, a career um, um, missionary, as Steve is. Steve is now the chairman of Pioneers. It's a missions group that sends um, people to un unreached people groups, Christians to unreached people groups. When Steve was four, years, or four months old, and I won't tell you the whole story. You can watch. The, I tell you a little bit more in the show. But when he was four months old, his mom and his dad took him to um, New Guinea, Papua New Guinea, to a tribe of headhunters and cannibals who had never been with white people before. There were only, at this time, seven tribes of headhunters and cannibals in the entire world. And so here they go to tell these folks the gospel. And they stay alive long enough to do that. And in the transmission of the telling of this story of the gospel, they get to Judas. And to their horror, the tribe starts cheering for Judas. I mean, especially in the Luke version, where Judas betrays Jesus with a kiss. They thought that was great. Now, think here for a minute, in case you are taken back with that. Think here that these people live in a culture where their whole life is a battle, where their whole life is to win over an enemy with as little effort as they possibly can because why waste effort when you don't need to? If then you would think, okay, why not lure my enemy into a place of security 
and then attack him, especially if I can do it with a kiss. Man, that just is the piece de resistance. That, that's just really cool, which means he's so relaxed, I conquer him with no effort whatsoever. Good for Judas. Now you think that's shocking, that's horrible. Have you been out there lately? It's all about winning. It's all about bringing in money. It's all about doing what you need to do. How many people have you said, yeah, all this Christianity, or have you heard from, all this Christianity's business, great in church, but you can't live like that out there. It's not practical. That is a dog-eat-dog -dog world. That is a jungle out there. Everybody's out for themselves. Tell me how that's different than living with headhunters and cannibals. No, it's the same thing. And Jesus knew that about people. We've got to know that about people. Now, people aren't always mean at heart. It's just they have a value to win. And so anytime you live in a world where people just want win to win, they want more power, you're going to have betrayal because people are little politicians. They will do what's necessary to get power. So don't be surprised when your friends go to the other side. You will be hurt. You may be, you may be crushed. But don't be surprised because people are just people unless they're living out of their new nature. Now come on with me some more. Very curious. Next verses. Look at this. <clears throat> he said, whom do you seek? They answered him and said, Jesus the Nazarene. He said to them, I am. Judas also was betrayed, was, was betrayed and standing with them. When therefore he said to them, I am. And this is what he said. He didn't say, I am he. That's an English addition. Uh, uh, he said, I am. Now, you all know what that is. That's the name of God. When Moses looked at the burning bush and said, who shall I say sent me? Pharaoh's going to ask me, what's your name? And God said, I am. And Jesus said those exact words. Remember, in that, in that great old hymn, a mighty fortress is our God, there is a line that says, one little word shall fell them. That's referring to this scripture, because look what happens next. When therefore he said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. I love this part. Here's all these soldiers, all these torches, all these weapons, and all of them, Jesus just says, I am. And they go, boom, knocked on their heinies. <laughs> these soldiers are laying down there. Judas is laying down there. Now, here's the curious part. If you had gone out to attack Jesus... And he had just spoken his name and you were so overcome with the power of God that you were on your back on the ground. Would you not sit there and just think to yourself, maybe this isn't such a good idea? <laughs> Wouldn't you? I mean, I mean, who, who would get, who would be so absolutely stuck in their sin, who would be so absolutely intent on carrying out their sin that they would get up and do the same thing that they were going to do knowing what power they were facing? You tell me. Isn't that what we all do? I mean, how many times do you do, you do something you absolutely know is wrong? You absolutely know it. You know how powerful God is. And you go ahead and do it, and you get knocked on your hiney. Now, at that point, you should say, hmm, not going to do that again. But what do you do? You get up, and you do it again. Boom! And you get knocked on your hiney. Bad things happen to you. And you know why bad things are happening to you. You're not that dumb. 
You're saying bad things are happening to me because I'm going against God, and you're absolutely right. And so you get up, and you do it again. Here's just a little word for you. This might help you out. Don't do that anymore. Okay? You have permission to stop doing that which hurts you. See, God is very powerful. And every time you do something against him, he's going to knock you on your hiney. And then if you keep doing it, it gets worse. Don't do it anymore. There, that helps you. Okay. Now let's go on from here. Come, come along with me some more. It says this. It says, and, and um, um, verse 8, Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If therefore you seek me, let these go their way that the word might be fulfilled, which he spoke of those whom God hath given me, thou hast given me, I lost not one. I want you to see the characteristic of a real leader. When he is betrayed, he doesn't incline himself to going back to the posse and building support. <laughs> Look at what it says. He intentionally draws the attacker's attention to himself. Look at verse 4. It says, he stepped forth. You know what that means? It means he left his disciples behind. It says he protects the mission and those depending on him. Do you remember what it said in the 10th chapter of the Gospel of John, verses 7 and verses 11? It says this, The true shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. What happens to you when you are betrayed? What happens to you when you are hurt? I tell you, the first inclination you have is to go get support, is to go rouse those who are with you, your posse, whoever that is, your family, your friends, and to start pouring the poison into them about this person over here. Do you know what they did to me? This is awful. Aren't they awful? Isn't this unjust? Don't we hate them? Is that what Jesus did? Did Jesus go back to his disciples and say, look, there's 12 of us. There's... Well, there's 12 of us. <laughs> no. Jesus went forward and he said, look, you got a problem with me? Take me. Leave them alone. If you want to be a real Christian leader, somebody told me something a long time ago I've never forgotten. A Christian leader does not inflict pain. He bears it. A Christian leader does not inflict pain. He bears it. And if you've been hurt, don't spread your hurt. If you need counsel from one or two people, that might be one thing. If you need to be put back together, if you need somebody to pray for you. That, but don't get the posse going. They don't deserve to be filled with your poison. You've got to protect them from that. You've got to protect them from their involvement and their distraction from what they were put here to do. Now come along with me some more. Then it says this. There was another impediment. There was another thing that Jesus had to be careful, especially from his, his, his guys. And that is, when your guys know about it, they're going to go ahead. Some, one or two of them are going to go ahead anyhow. And you've got to protect them from themselves. Because they have these flesh impulses. You know, the natural temptation is to fight back. That's just natural. 
That's what people, I, oh man, I'm going to get him back. He may have hurt me, but I'm going to get him back. And if you don't have it, they will for you. Many times they have it more for you than, than you have it for yourself. And that's exactly what happens with Peter. Look at this. Simon Peter, therefore, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave, cut off his right ear. Now it says in Luke that Jesus just healed it right again. And the slave's name was Malchus. John's knew, John knew the slave's name. Jesus, therefore, said to Peter, put the sword into the sheath. And he probably said it about like that. Because there was a very strong rebuke for the flesh response of revenge. Why? Jesus knew not only did he need to protect them against their natural instinct of coming out with all the might they had, but he needed to protect what he had spent years to build. Do you realize that Jesus, when he went into the ministry, year after year, built a spiritual ministry of service, of openness, of love. He built one of people paying attention to God, built one of people glorifying God. And do you know, I know you do, that all the world knows is that of power, of fighting, of rebellion. And so they were trying to categorize this movement of Jesus, the Jews and the Romans were. And they were fully expecting that it was just a political movement, just another move for power. And any little battle from this group would have automatically categorized them in the Roman mind as another political group, another political uprising we just have to put down. And that would have been their categorization, putting down an uprising. And so Jesus wanted to protect that which he had been building for years spiritually. And you know as well as I do, a fleshly impulse can totally destroy or blot out what you have worked so hard to build. I mean, we know that. Think, just think of Bobby Knight got, got fired today. Now, Bobby Knight is a whale of a basketball coach. How many people will remember Bobby Knight was a whale of a basketball coach? What about Woody Hayes? Woody Hayes was one of my favorite football coaches. This guy was an absolute genius. He was a Nobody knows that he was a military historian. He was a genius when it came to uh, military strategy. That's one of the things that made him such a good football coach. But most people remember one thing about Woody Hayes, and that is when, when, when somebody interrupted an Ohio State pass, he grabbed the kid from the sidelines and pushed him. And he got fired immediately, rightly so, and he put a blot over everything he was trying to do. What do you remember about Jimmy Swaggart? What do you, what do you, what do you remember about Baker? See, it, it just blots out Everything. It is so important we do not respond out of the flesh. It is so important. <laughs> and let me give you just a minor thing that happened to me this week. And I, I tell you, I'm getting really tired of coming back to you guys and tell you how stupid I am. <laughs> but, <clears throat> but until I quit being stupid, I guess I can at least use it for a sermon illustration. <laughs> Becky and I had the great privilege. I, got, I was invited to speak to a conference uh, of representatives of an entire denomination. These are all the district superintendents of the Nazarene Church in North America. 
And I, I just can't tell you what an honor this is. Everyone else at that conference got to speak one time. I got three times at the whole group. And, and what a wonder it is that they would have a pastor of a local church come and tell them about what the future of the church is going to be like, especially when I, I teach at Reformed Theological Seminary, and anybody who knows anything about denominational differences, Nazarenes are way at the other end of the spectrum. So I could not believe, I was just praising God. I was just saying, God, I can't believe you did this. This is incredible. So we're in Montreal, Canada all week, and we're, I'm, I'm teaching and, 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 and get done, and boy, the response is great. I'm just thinking, boy, we've got such a great future here with these folks, and, and, and they're, they're starting to see the wisdom of partnership and the distributed church, and, and just, I mean, it's just, they're just wonderful, because these are just practical people trying to help their pastors under them uh, build stronger churches, and it's a very practical thing. So this is great, you know, it's all going great, and, and I, we come back to the room one night, and, and uh, and I start getting, you know, I start getting ready for bed. And, and Beck says, you know, I just feel, do you, how, does Diet Coke sound good to you? <laughs> Which is French for, would you go get a Diet Coke? Um, <laughs> now, there's two ways that I can get a Diet Coke. I can, I can call down to room service and have them come up with this little, you know, ounce of Diet Coke with an umbrella that pokes you in the nose and, and costs about a million bucks. Um, but I'm just so stinking cheap. And even though they're paying for all my expenses, I still don't want to do that to the church. I'm just too cheap. A, a, a Coke machine is a much better bargain. And so I grab a $2 um, coin, a Canadian, they have $2 coins, and I start going to the Coke machine. And, and the Coke machine on my floor is out of Diet Coke. Now there's only, other, there's only one other, this is such a fancy hotel, there's only one other uh, Coke machine in, a, in, a, in the building. It's on, it's on uh, floor 33. I know this. Um, <clears throat> and, and, and it's because they just, they want you to buy little uh, poke yourself in the nose umbrella Cokes. So, but I'm determined, you know, I'm going to get it out of a Coke machine. So I get in the, I get in the elevator and there's a district superintendent there with his wife. And, and he, he, he introduces me to his wife and I, I greet her and I'm just real friendly. And she just is facing the front of the thing. I'm talking to her. She just keeps facing the front of the thing. And I just think, well, this is just weird. This is strange. I'm trying to be friendly to her, and she just keeps facing the front of the thing. And, and I'm thinking, well, you know, Nazarenes, I mean, traditional Nazarenes, very conservative. They don't wear jewelry or go to movies or play cards or do any of that stuff, you know, not worldly at all. And I'm thinking, well, maybe, maybe this is kind of like an Islamic kind of thing where it's just, you know, talk to men or something. Just, I don't know. I don't know what's going on. It's just odd. Well, the door opens up and I get out and I start walking. I feel a draft. And I look down and my shirt was unbuttoned to my navel. I looked like some bozo going through a midlife crisis, you know? I looked down and went, oh no! Right in the hallway, right in the hallway. You know why I did that? Because I know no matter what she heard me say in those sessions, she's going to remember one thing about that whole conference. <laughs> Everything I worked hard to build in her mind is blotted out by the guy didn't button his shirt. You know? Listen, this is what Jesus was looking at. Jesus looked at Peter and said, don't do that. Because that's all they'll remember. Don't act on your impulse. Don't, don't blot out this ministry with flesh accents. And, and that's what he's telling you. Don't go to what you want to do. Don't go to revenge. Don't go to trying to fix what is past and 
can't be helped anymore. Don't do that. The very last part of that last verse that we're studying tonight says simply this. And this is how to overcome betrayal. The cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? God has put every one of us on this earth to do a job. And part of the cup, in Scripture, the cup is, is your life circumstance. It's the cards you've been dealt. And part of those cards are not only your capabilities, but your hurts. Not only the great things that have happened, but the bad things that have happened. Not only the great friends you have, but the ones you lost. Not only the ways you've loved, but the ways you've been betrayed. And Jesus said, this is part of it. And you've got to realize what you're going through is part of what you have. And the way to overcome betrayal is to go ahead and do your job anyhow. Go ahead and do your job anyhow. I know some of you hurt so bad you can hardly get out of bed in the morning. And I want to tell you, every time you do get out of bed, even though you hurt, you have just overcome betrayal. Every time you put on your shoes when you can hardly bend over because you're crying so hard, you are overcoming betrayal. Every time you go to the door and you get in your car and you go to work, you are overcoming betrayal. Every time you speak an encouraging word, when you wish you could just hurt a little less, you are overcoming betrayal. I heard a story one time about two former prisoners of a Nazi concentration camp. They met years after they had been liberated. And one looked at the other and asked this very deep question. Have you been able to forgive them yet for what they did to us? And the one looked back and said, I really have. Have you? And the one who had asked the question in the first place said, no. Every day I live, I wish that they hurt just a little bit like they hurt us. And the other one said, then they still have you prisoner, don't they? You've got to go on. The way you overcome betrayal is not to bring it up in your mind over and over again. It's to go ahead and do your job. I'm going to ask Tim and Andy to come out and sing this song to help us pray through a determination that even though we've been hurt, we're going to do what we need to do and love like we need to love. Listen. Listen.